Hi, my name's Rachel Coughlin, and before we start, I'd like to pay my respects to the Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on here in Canberra, but also because this is streaming um, across Australia and other parts, I want to acknowledge um, the traditional owners and custodians, um, the First Nations people across Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, uh, past and present. So I am the CEO of Craft ACT, Craft and Design Centre, and the Artistic Director of the Design Canberra Festival, which is held every November over three weeks, and we have more than 200 tours and events and exhibitions and installations which celebrate and promote Canberra as a global city of design. It'll be back again this year from the 9th to the 29th of November. And we're very excited because uh, conservation architect Peter Freeman, who's here with me today, um, will actually launch his new book, which uh, is called Thoroughly Modern, Moira and Sutherland Architects as part of the festival. And Peter has written numerous books, in fact, 16, he tells me, and he's studied the work and contribution of the architects, uh, Moyer and Sutherland, since 1997. So um, I'm very excited to have this opportunity to talk to Peter today and learn a little bit more about this project and um, his book. Um, he's amazingly drawn on uh, the Moyer and Sutherland archive here at the National Library of Australia's Preservation Lab. We're standing before some beautiful hand-coloured drawings, original drawings, and Peter, in fact, helped to catalogue these archives as well, so they've played a really significant part in this book. And so, um, I'm a great fan of uh, Moira and Sutherland's work, but I probably don't know anywhere near as much about them as you do, Peter. So. Um, Maybe we'll start with, you know, who, who were Malcolm Moyer and Heather Sutherland? Thank you. Um, <laughs> both came from um, Caithness in the top of Scotland, and I think very hardy people. And they were hardy in the sense that they could actually deal with pretty much anything, and that's what they did. Um, they met in a very different, different way. She, he lived in a, a very humble place, um, and his father was a forester, and they used to go all around New South Wales. In the end, when it came time to go to university, and he had to go to architecture, um, his mother, Dulcie Buller, said, we'll go to Sydney together, and you'll make a, you'll make a home for me. So he designed a house. On the other hand, Heather had a very, very rich father and very rich predecessors, and um, she could pretty much get what she wanted. She actually entered university something like three years after Malcolm. Right. So both were at University of Sydney studying architecture. Yes, and they were in that very, very early period when the lecturers were just second to none. Professor Wilkinson, John D. Moore, um, all sorts of people who, who would come and go from there. And uh, they learnt enormous amount. Malcolm went in to live in St Andrews, Heather being Heather and having a family to look after because her mother died of um, di what was it? influenza in 1919. So she had to go back to the house all the time to look after the children, the three other children. <clears throat> and so I um, know the residential home at 43 Melbourne Avenue in Canberra, but can you tell us, um, I know a few have been demolished, but um, what are a couple of um, other buildings that they've um, designed in Canberra that people might have known about? Well, people don't know about the Brisbane building, which was built opposite the Sydney building, um, and it was built at a time when 
Um, Civic was actually coming alive at last. Um, he did that with Eric Andrews from Sydney. Um, that's not so well known. Yeah. What is well known is the, um, the buildings at Evans Crescent, the series of uh, six out of seven buildings that um, um, Moyer and Sutherland designed. Yeah. And they did it all in that functionalist um, approach that uh, was so not common, but so important to them in the 1930s. So I've heard their <clears> style <throat> described as interwar functionalist style. Could you break that down? What would that look like to people who are, are less aware of architecture? It's a strange word. Um, it's basically cubic building, cubics, cubic building. It's like Rubik's Cube, a whole sort of series of things put together. Yeah. What they liked to do was to have um, steel joinery for the windows and the doors. Um, often that wasn't uh, possible. When they could get crittle um, windows, they'd do that. Um, they'd always put the windows at the corner. So in a way, there's a cutaway from the, from the cube. But in a way, that was like a sort of, um, a, a sort of mystery to, to actually include that within the building. And it created a, a really um, ex excellent sort of photogenic feel. And then a flat roof which had a parapet right round. Right, okay. And um, so I'm, I'm really interested that they arrived in Canberra in those interwar years. I spent a long time working at Old Parliament House, which of course opened in 1927. And I um, spent many years um, living in a house in Ainsley, one of the 1927 FCC type homes for, um, you know, the, the public servants who came. A timber house, really oh, that's beautiful. What, that's one of the ones I've put in the list. Oh, of, great, yeah. great, yeah. It's really beautiful in the Corroboree Park Heritage yes. Precinct. And so I, I'm very fond of that period because it strikes me as a time for Canberra where there was a lot of optimism and hope about finally establishing this national capital. But then it was really thwarted by, you know, the depression and then the wars. So there must have been a lot of emotions around in that time. And um, in your notes, I read Malcolm arrived in 1927. So that's a really pivotal time in Canberra's history and Heather in 1936. And so I'm really interested in how their work was influenced by the social events and uh, political movements of that time. Can you speak to that? Well, can I just say the Federal Capital Commission Architects Department of that period was probably second to none in the world. Wow. It was extraordinary. There were people coming from all over the place to work there. And it's no wonder that Malcolm actually, when he could, have, could find no more work in Sydney, he went there. Um, Would he, he have been invited to be part of the No, FCC? no, he would have, he would he have, would have uh, applied. Um, and he was there three years and then he was basically pushed into the Department of Works, Commonwealth Department of Works, and then within five months he was pushed out of that. And there's a very interesting case called the Architects case, where he and seven others went to court and said, why have you done this to us? Because you know you need to have buildings done. Mm. We know there's a depression, but you're going to get rid of this wonderful talent we've got. In fact, that was all dismissed in the end. Mm. Um, now, your question was? The question is about, you know, that there was a lot going on in the world in the 20s and 30s and, and 40s. And, you know, um, what were some of those social or political movements that might have influenced um, their practice, but also their engagement with the community? How did, did they engage in political debate? Did they 
Did it influence their work? Heather, not so much, although she was cited in later on in well a series of um, newspaper articles about her capacity to both run a practice or be part of a practice, to keep a family, look after a family, and to basically produce buildings that were second to none. Um, Malcolm was very, very different. He, he loved politics, in fact, tried to be the first member for the House of Representatives in 1949. <clears throat> he was beaten by Dr. Knott, um, well, by, by a sliver. Um, uh, but he, and he was also absolutely um, outgoing about the need to have good planning and to have kept the Griffin plan. Yes. And he kept on writing to the Camera Times about this and talking to whoever he could talk about. Um, about it. So they were very different people in that respect. Very stolid and, and, and because they were Scottish they, they actually could deal with anything. But he was determinedly um, public yeah. and she was determinedly private. Right. <laughs> right. Although uh, Jack McNamara, who was one of the people who um, worked for them as a, as a builder, a contractor, and did a number of buildings with said he couldn't speak more highly of Heather Sutherland. She was a wonderful, wonderful person. And, she, and he said that she could actually talk the leg of anyone, any builder, any builder or carpenter who gave her trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really interesting. Obviously, um, there weren't many female architects at that time. And as you've pointed out, she kept her own surname and, and kept her own identity. She's signed the plans herself. Um, was that unusual for that time for, for someone to be such a confident um, woman working in a world that was probably fair to say uh, mostly male dominated? Wasn't that much actually. There was a 50-50 arrangement in University of Sydney right through the 20s. Really? Yes. Um, Rosette Edmonds who basically ran her own practice and by 36 was writing her own books about architecture through the world. Um, uh, there were always people who were willing to come down and work and they were for, for Moyer when there was too much work. And they're always women mm -hmm. um, because they knew that they could um, get, um, walk into a good office, um, but also work on really good projects. Okay, well that's, that's very hard. And Rosette Edmonds <laughs> was one of those right through the 50s when they went off to Europe. She, she dropped in for a year and it goes on. And so do you think you were able to describe their um, significance or their contribution to architecture as a whole or perhaps in Canberra specifically? Um, I can, yes. They produced really, really brilliant buildings. Um, what was brilliant about them when you say they were brilliant buildings? They were very, very different, yeah. um, very disciplined um, and very original. Not that Kenneth Oliphant wasn't trying to do the same thing, although he was doing it in a much more similar scale. And not that the Europeans who came in after the war and actually did, undertook all sorts of really interesting buildings. Malcolm wasn't averse to that. He, he, he appreciated what they did. I've got to say, his big achievement was the theatres. Right. He found a way to actually interest the community in, in living in Canberra. Mm. Because without the theatres, there was nothing to do. Oh, they could go to Hobart Hall, yes. but there was no, no place that they could actually do nothing. So he did two things. 
Um, very early in the Depression, he became manager of the capital. Um, then in '36, he designed the Civic. And then he actually was asked to design other, other theatres after that. But the big thing was that he actually produced or had brought in some wonderful films. So he was a bit of an icon for the Canberra people. Yeah. You know, they had this theatre and they had really good films. So he designed the theatre and the brought theater. the films. Mm. Yeah. And uh, that's quite an addition to the Canberra landscape of that time, isn't it? When it was still sheep paddocks in many areas. Yeah. 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 And there was that story about um, Marion Marnie Griffin, who came to their house, 42 Melbourne Avenue in 1937. Uh, just she'd come back from America, I, I think, to actually fix up things after um, his death. And she came to his house and stood in the, in the garden and stood there for a while and Malcolm actually ended up having to go out and ask her who she was and she said, <laughs> I'm his wife and the two buildings I like in this place are the Civic Theatre and this building. That's amazing, mm. isn't it? Mm. That's an extraordinary uh, commendation. And that's come right through the, the Moyer family. Yeah. You know, every, every, Every one of the, fa the family know about it. Yeah, that's mm. wonderful. Mm. That's really extraordinary. Um, which I guess makes it even more extraordinary that um, probably the names Moyer and Sutherland are not as well known outside of architecture as perhaps they ought to be. So your book might really help to kind of build some awareness of them. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. Yes, it's known. I mean, their work is known, but it's it's... It's not widely known, and I guess what I felt in '97, and I've felt ever since for 23 years, that this has got to be done. Yeah. And I hope I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, in fact, you know, so um, not only drawing on the amazing archives here in the National Library of Australia, mm. their collection is extraordinary, but helping to catalogue them with your mm. wife, Tanny, is just an amazing contribution to the design sector as a whole. But that must have been such a privilege to be going through Oh, yeah, we were Those amazed. archives. We're so, amazed. you know, what did you find? How, how did you feel when you were finding, I'm assuming, personal and professional documents? Yes. And Yeah, what yes. did you find? Well, pretty much every document, because we, we would actually um, either um, photograph the, the document, um, we certainly would photograph the, the drawings, um, and there'd always be an annotation at the bottom somewhere or other, which was fairly direct, often fairly snide, um, <laughs> often about the quality of the client. And, but then there's often, often client letters with the same sort of annotation on it. So it was a, it was a dog eat dog sort of thing, I think. Did they get any repeat business? Was that a problem, those relationships? Or? Well, I was telling you about the Osmond House in Ord Street. That was extraordinary because in 19, uh, what was it, 1943, I think. No, sorry, it was in the early 1950s. Um, one of the Osmonds came up to um, Sir Malcolm and said, can you design a little house for us in Ord Street? Because Ord Street had only just been um, built. Right. It was, it was just a lane <clears throat> and turned. And he lived, that house was opposite Richard Urey, who designed the memorial, the Australian-American memorial, and he was next to Malcolm. So it was a little mm. group. And they all lived next to Mervyn Jones, the policeman. The extraordinary thing about that group was that, or that house, well, the first extraordinary thing was in 1977, um, 
Mr. Osman wrote to me and actually explained the entire sequence of what happened in that first years when Heather designed the building. It took five years to get it built for a whole lot of reasons, mainly about builders who wouldn't do their work. Um, the next, after Heather died, um, Malcolm came along and actually added a, a, first, a second floor to the, or a, a top floor yes. to the building. Yes. And then when he died in 1973, Angus, who was trying to work as a director for the, the newly, um, uh, newly badged uh, Moyer and Sutherland with a Melbourne firm, uh, he, he designed a garage. So it's a great pity that was built, uh, pulled down because yes. it was a wonderful <laughs> selection of Moyer work. Absolutely, mm. yeah. And so um, in going through the archive here at the National Library, which, I mean, how many items would be in the, that archive? Can you estimate? I don't know. If you've ever read the, read, read the end notes to, the, to each chapter, <laughs> too many to mention. Oh, they're voluminous. <laughs> and, and I think I might have made a mistake, but in the end notes, I actually um, put in the inventory of each of the properties, uh, the houses or the, the other buildings that they, they built in that year. Yeah. And there may be people who are keen on that because they might find their family in yes. it. Yes, of course. Yeah. And so going through these beautiful archival documents, did it change the way you understood Moyer and Sutherland? Oh, absolutely. In what way? Absolutely. I was very lucky to have done the Kenneth Oliphant um, inventory the year before and, and a, a Life and Times. Um, so I knew exactly how I wanted to do this one. I guess I was amazed by what they'd achieved and the fact um, of these two working together. Um, but I was very helped by the work of Bronwyn Hanna, who's a historian in Sydney who wrote um, two very, very important books about women, arch women architects in that period. And she had done me the, um, the good thing of in interviewing all sorts of people about women architects. Mm -hmm. So not only did I have that, I had this wonderful volume of information about mm -hmm. women architects in Australia, well, in New South Wales in that yeah. time. Was Heather a role model for female architects? Not overtly, yeah. although she did. Before she left, in, um, before she came down in 36, ostensibly to look after the children of Malcolm's after his first wife, Nance, died. Mm. And then she also was offered work there and she hadn't had work for four or five years. In fact, she'd taken to writing books, um, which no one ever published. Oh. But there were books about architects or how to be an architect, all that sort of mm. thing. In those years, 34, 35, 36, um, she was giving spe um, speeches and talks all over the place about how women could be architects and what they can do and how they can actually do that as well as their normal life. Yeah, right, right. And then when she got down here, as I was telling you before, in the first big Institute of Architects convention in Melbourne, 1951, she was picked out by the Argus as a, lumin a luminous uh, figure who could actually both run a practice and actually have children and get to these conventions. Wow. She had just come back from Europe, so uh, I think Argus knew all about that because they included that. But yes, she was, she was recognised. How do you think she was able to juggle in that way? How, how? She's Scottish. She's Scottish. <laughs> just that's the <laughs> only answer. Come back to the same thing. Yeah. They could do anything. Just they could do anything. Work ethic, yeah. organised, yeah. disciplined. Yeah. 
She was, um, her stepsister was Joan Sutherland, the, the uh -huh. singer. Yeah. And um, I think they taught each other a few things. They didn't actually get on very well together, but they taught each other a few things. And so you mentioned earlier that um, Malcolm and Heather had travelled to the States, the United yes. States, and um, you know that's it's a wonderful idea to think there was a, an international perspective to the work that they did. Can you tell me a little bit about what took them over there, what they did while they were there, and what they brought back? Well, guess why they went to, to USA? Yes. They went to Hollywood first off. Oh, really? He went there because he knew all the actors, he knew all the people who had, you know, um, did the films and oh of course it's uh, all the theater <laughs> yeah. so there's a wonderful photograph in the book of, of um, Malcolm sitting well that, that large photograph of Malcolm sitting down with his wife in the one of the studios in Hollywood um, and then they went to New York because they knew architects there they wanted to talk to and he wanted to see what New York looked like mm. and then of course they went to Finland to see mm. Alba Alto wow. Yeah. Great time to be there. Yeah, yeah. and um, and then Arne Jakobsen in um, in Copenhagen, yeah. and and the very lucky thing for me, and this has come about by a whole series of accidents, but the granddaughter, Alice Heather Moyer, which is named after the three of them, yeah. <laughs> um, said, "I've got the slides of Malcolm's. I happen to be in Paris, but um, if there's any way you can get them, I'll, I'll actually." Um, I'll get, get them for you. In the end, we got them from Adelaide, where they were, and um, most of those slides I've used in the book. So As, these are uh, personal photographs? Yes. Is it? They're either, there's most of the ones in Europe of Heather walking up and down parks. Yeah. Um, all lots and lots of buildings. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of buildings. Um, did it change? Did those travels change oh, their own have. practice? They yeah. would have, yeah. I think they would have knowing what they knew from their university, which was a very universal sort of um, uh, tutelage, yeah. I think they would have just been waiting to get overseas. Yeah. He couldn't for the f because of the first marriage and the first death of his wife. He couldn't because after that he was setting up a practice and she joined him. And finally by 1952, after they'd had their child in 1942, Angus, they were free to go. And they did. And they did. <laughs> and they did. So obviously they um, held, or at least Malcolm held, strong views about um, the Griffin plan. How do you think uh, Moyer and Sutherland would feel about Canberra today? I think they'd be worried and upset. Mm. Although um, that's a strange thing because Malcolm was actually, he was determinedly behind the Griffin plan, but he thought, because he loved the Marnecke shopping centre so much, he wanted to move the shopping centre entirely into what is now the Oval. Right. <laughs> Get that one. Um, <laughs> I can't work out how he's going to do it, but um, he had a whole lot of wacky ideas, but he was determined that the Griffin um, plan should stand. Right, right. And it didn't. Um, I'm not really the person to, to, to comment on Canberra today because I've lived in, the, in a little rural hamlet for the last 20, 17 years. But... Um, there's a lot I would have done differently, and the first thing would have been to actually impose a level limit for all the, the city and for all the, all the various cities in, in yeah. Canberra. Yeah. The, 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 the way in which those sort of buildings have been gargantuanized um, is upsetting, mm. and you've only got to go to Paris or to any most Spanish uh, uh, cities to see how you can do it.
and I wish they'd done it here. So, so then um, your book will be launched at Design Canberra on mm -hmm. the 20th of November. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank, no, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. We're really delighted to, to be the hosts. Um, and so uh, when people are able to get their hands on this amazing book, this extraordinary resource for architecture, but for Canberra too, um, what do you hope they take away from your book? What would you like them to know about Malcolm Moyer and Heather Sutherland? Um. Well, for a start, the book is going to be 300 pages long. <laughs> I, I, I imagine they'll dip in and look at, at this and that. I think they'll find a very different world in more time. I'm only going to take it up to the death of Malcolm. Um, I was tempted to actually take it right into the work, the work of War, uh, Ward and Slater yes. after he died. But there's no room for that. I just wanted to tell that story. Yeah. Um, I hope they take out of it that these two, these two people and their son were extremely, extremely important people. Important in the sense of architecture, the city of Canberra, uh, Australia. The way, in the, the, which, in the way in which they brought quality yeah. to, to Canberra yeah. in that period. Yeah, yeah. Not determinedly. It's just the way they worked. They, that's what they did. Yeah. One of the three things we try and do in the Design Canberra Festival is to promote design education, design excellence, and um, design history. Mm. And, and what I love about your book and your research and your you know, long involvement with architecture is that you achieve all three things. And it's, it's just such an honour to bring it together. I love hearing the social history behind mm. these beautiful designs. I love seeing the beauty in these you know, hand-coloured drawings. It's, it's quite exquisite. So um, thank you so much, Peter. We're super excited about having you in the festival this year. And this is just a wonderful contribution to the design sector. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have to say that very surprisingly, and I don't know why. I do know why, actually, but I was given an order of Australia, not because of the architecture I did, but it's because of the heritage stuff I did right. and the books. Yeah, right. <laughs> So you get you get to come up and sit there. It's wonderful. It's just wonderful resource. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, thank you, Peter. I think we um, we all want to get our hands on that 300-page book. It'll be some beautiful reading for everyone, and we're really looking forward to having you in the festival. And um, you know, it's just amazing to see the resources that the National Library has here in their preservation lab, and um, it's a wonderful opportunity just to learn a small part of the extraordinary knowledge that you've obviously gathered over 20 years in developing this project. And um, thank you for being part of this. And thank you also to the National Library of Australia for hosting this wonderful conversation and making your archives available to us. <laughs>